0: fellow citizens let's be let's be, be bluntly honest who's the heavyweight champion of the world In my opinion still and perhaps always will be the greatest there's
1: so much there okay Yeah. You know, what are we doing for your time you helped night, our
0: night with a cry for freedom as on this podcast
1: pay attention to the voices that are doing the framing. What we're talking about is the consumerism. Withheld and allotted only. Nobody's calling
0: calling LeBron Black Jesus. Welcome back to Sports and Society. We're here on May 3rd. We're into week whatever of uh, staying at home. How you doing, Kyle?
1: Doing pretty well. And actually, today I was kind of feeling that like it, in some ways feels normal uh so i wonder what that means for as far as like the time it takes for a uh, social change to become normalized in some sort of way as in it like I don't, I don't know the thought of it like not ending here in the in the next little bit wasn't as terrifying
0: <laughs> well it is that's an excellent question because i do think um you know, you read all those self-help things out there. I think they talk about like eight weeks to form a habit. And we're getting close to that uh, that mm-hmm. point in some ways. Um, mm-hmm. I've been fascinated by the question of like what changes when this ends? Like what habits have we formed that we don't want to break? Like are we less likely to want to go drive somewhere every weekend to do something? Are we less likely to... You know, go to movies in general or what? what is it that we're less likely to do when this is all over what habits are changing
1: mm-hmm. yeah and the piece that always stands out to me and my friends and family are probably annoyed with me talking about it all the time but is the precedents that are potentially being set for managing and mitigating climate change mm-hmm. uh, here in the future of i wonder about the extent to which when we are forced uh, to enact some policies that will change our behaviors because of climate change if there are precedents here that policymakers are going to pull from.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, I worry that the precedents that we're seeing is that there will be angry protests uh, by men with guns uh, all over
1: the place. Right? Like, that's a perfect example of, like, that's going to happen. Like, you know, I I mean, anyone that's in a a seat of power has to be looking out on that and saying like, okay, that how are we going to deal with that when that happens? Because that's a guarantee and it'll probably be even more extreme because it's so much more difficult for those not attuned to the nuances of climate change to deal with policy being enacted on something that is nuanced.
0: I'm I'm. Endlessly fascinated by many things, um, but not least of all is the way media drives these things um, mm-hmm. and so thinking about um, you know our statistics seem to suggest it's about a sixty forty split between folks that uh, don't forty percent want to go back to everything right now and we 'll just deal with it and sixty percent in the here in the u s are understand why we want to do what we 're doing right now and to support it um. Whereas in the UK that's about an eighty twenty uh in support uh split. And I wonder how much of that is because the media is covering it differently in mm-hmm. uh in that in the UK. But also thinking personally about how if I were in if I were in the Washington Post, how would I handle this differently? And I see many things that would be different. And part of it is just the politicization of it that uh I think right. as soon as we made it political it became a – and so as much as I appreciate the Washington Post holding Trump accountable, um, it's perhaps been a negative thing in the long run for, uh, uh, being able to stay where we need to stay for this, uh, in public opinion.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a great point. And that, I feel like that concept of a credibility gap, uh, like goes both ways, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, if Obama were president, how would people be responding? And oh, I, grief. I, you know, I'm wondering now, like, speaking of armed protesters, like, they probably would be even more ramped up.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and then you have to look at conservative news outlets and all that sort of thing.
0: Yeah. But anyway, it's going to get worse before it gets better, still, folks, just FYI. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: but well, what about the sports world?
0: You know, I have to say that. Um, I sat down to write out my outline for this week, and I was kind of like, you know what? I Other than the Jordan documentary, I don't think there's anything in the sports world that really captured my attention
1: this week. Well, we're similar in that uh, I, I couldn't come up with anything, really. Like Looking back on my memory of the week, I didn't really have anything that was standing out to me except the documentary.
0: Yeah, I mean, maybe there's some stuff about, you know, NBA opening practices back up, but that's not that interesting, and, uh, you know, perhaps the best news was in some ways that the NBA told teams not to test folks that are asymptomatic, because that seems to be the way the sports world wants to operate, is to test everybody so they can get back going, so to see the league uh, say no to that was good, but, uh, again, just doesn't really interest me that much at this point.
1: Yeah. I guess I did see the headline and didn't read to it, into it too far, but that English Premier League is considering uh, opening up sooner than later, or at least is like starting to take some steps to make that happen. Mm-hmm. So we'll see how that plays out.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's it's it's. Uh, from a sociological perspective and a research perspective, it is fascinating to see how different <laughs> countries are responding to this. Mm-hmm. And to see France, like, shutting down mass gatherings all the way through September, October, and kind of putting the kibosh on a lot of things. Um, versus Germany and England, where they seem to be hoping that they'll be getting back to sports sooner rather than later. It's a, it, There's some serious differences in how these countries are handling it.
1: That's really true. Well, what was it in the documentary that stood out to you? Oh,
0: I have a lot for this week. I don't I don't know about you, but um, there's just so much to break down here. Um, I have to say, uh, I'll probably start with um, a couple small things here. So, like, uh, just in passing, you know, Steve Kerr, how did he become who he is now coming out of this situation? Like, who would he... Have been had he not played for Jordan, I don't mm-hmm. think I don't think we'd see the same person. Mm-hmm. Um, but also uh, want to give a shout out to Tex Winter, who I was not familiar with, but apparently is one of the most important basketball figures that we have never heard of before. So, uh, shout out to you uh, uh, in memoriam here, Tex.
1: Say more about that.
0: So uh, he was kind of the um, the basketball savant that. Uh, led from what I understand to uh, the triangle offense that Phil uh, started, but also more generally kind of to the modern um, uh, basketball offensive revolution
1: here. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, the, the triangle offense. One, uh, I don't think I could describe it. But I don't know if you could. Um, i don't I, I could give a very basic description, but there I am very confident that I'm mostly ignorant of how it works yet it's something that is has been so predominant in the game uh, ever since those first couple of years when the bulls uh, instigated it under Phil jackson and then I think what else stands out to me is how the way I kind of think about the nature of the conversation around the triangle offense is the piece that always comes up in the media when a new player joins a Phil Jackson team, and it's like how they are adjusting to the triangle offense. (laughs) Uh, And so I guess it points out to me that uh, these ways of playing the game are uh, incredibly difficult to grasp. Uh, The concepts are not easy, and then to actually do them is incredibly difficult as well.
0: Well, I think it also comes down to the progression of things that, um, you know, this, the, the triangle was revolutionary for its time. But when Phil came to the Knicks, uh, the offense had moved past that at that Mm -hmm. point. And -hmm. so it was no longer a relevant tool to, to get where you wanted to go at that point. So just to see the progression, but the, I love hearing about these underappreciated folks that kind of worked in the background to make these kind of things happen. Mm
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But I I want to start us off here, big picture, and I want to hear your opinion on this. Um, Talking about how I think um, a lot of this documentary has been couched in um, anti-Jerry Krause fashion. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Although I don't think perhaps unfairly so, um, given that it's focused on that last year and what he did in that last year was incredibly stupid. Um, But I do think we need to take a moment here and... um, appreciate that he was the reason that it all happened and particularly looking at firing Doug Collins mm-hmm. like um Doug Collins was a coach that Jordan really liked um and the fact that Jordan didn't get what he wanted and wound, the team wound up much better for it mm-hmm. uh, i think speaks to how important and how uh that probably wouldn't happen now like there's no way the lakers are hiring a coach that lebron or firing a coach that LeBron likes at this point to implement mm-hmm. somebody else, um, and perhaps that that made those teams better because there was uh, some of that friction that um, uh, you know that that created some heat and some energy that wouldn't have been there otherwise.
1: Mm. That is an interesting question. Um, <laughs> so it it takes me to a place where an interest of, of mine personally is how orchestrating success in a professional league especially one as fishbowl as the NBA and i think this would be true for soccer to a, a very large extent but it, it's probably it's it's the truth for every professional sport that exists on, on a on a very grand stage and that is that it's about a recipe and getting a group of individuals together that can work together to accomplish a goal, which is like the same strategy for any group of people that's trying to accomplish something. And just because it's happening in a fishbowl doesn't change that part, that there mm-hmm. there has to be a good recipe and it has to work together. But because it is in a fishbowl, there's an added element to it. And so I think that's what stood out to me in this documentary was how Jerry Krause, how Phil Jackson, how Michael Jordan, all were attempting to create this perfect recipe. But the extent to which it was happening in a fishbowl stood out to me and that that was like a key part of the equation that had to be considered. So I, I guess that's the first thing that comes to mind for me.
0: Interesting, yeah there's so much there's so much there and i think um like the complexity of getting that recipe right so this this was staggering to me i came upon this by espn afterwards that um so we get to see a little bit of jordan's um competitiveness around the gambling in this um mm-hmm. um and it was staggering to me that jordan uh during that 97 98 season made 33.14 million Mm dollars which was six million dollars more than the rest of the roster combined Mm -hmm. and you think about how do you how do you have a team with that kind of heavyweight uh, versus everybody else stuff involved and like no wonder pippen was furious on some level like that had to have exacerbated it to some degree to yes. see the bulls willing to pay Jordan that much, but not willing to pay him that much. Um, right. they didn't have to. Right. Um, and like, but that's, you know, that was just staggering, particularly in terms of like, what does that do to your chemistry? I mean, this guy's clearly the leader, so you can't deny and you can't deny it's worth it. But man, that's a lot of money. It's a lot of well, money by today's standards. I mean,
1: it is. And it, it makes me think about the question that we're always asking about where is the power in this kind of is, is part I think of, of what you were asking about what do we make of like Jerry Krause firing Doug Collins, a coach mm-hmm. that Michael Jordan loves so much. And while money is a part of the equation, uh, I like, an ultimate goal in some ways and how that goal is formulated and how it is articulated and how it is preached and the extent to which it is believed in by a group of players or Mm -hmm. by a coach or by the media or by the fans all has a role to play in it and so like fully delineating who has power and at what point and in what way over what decision in the quest not just for that perfect recipe but also for an ultimate goal Uh, which is to win a championship in these professional leagues. Um, So it's just kind of interesting to see all of those things work together. And I feel like the documentary does a great job to kind of put that in the forefront without being explicit and saying, this is what we're talking about. Uh, It's just kind of always hovering around it.
0: Well, yeah, and I, you know, I think there's this interesting question throughout as well about whether, you know, Jordan being this driven, and I, for the, first off, the story about him, um, his teammates talking about him breaking down after they beat that, won that Celtic series, and being, mm-hmm. like, them seeing that different side of him was really fascinating to me, because it, uh, kind of speaks to him, um, being more human than, uh, he led on to most of the world at that point, mm-hmm. um, but I'm also fascinated that I don't think any of us can understand, even you know, after eight episodes of this are over, none of us are going to really understand what it was like to be in that practice court with Jordan, to be uh, in the weight room with Jordan. But to hear um, them talk about how Jordan was the reason that Pippin became who he was because he kind of gave him that drive mm-hmm. um, is just fascinating to think about, you know, that balancing act because you know, you and I have complained about seeing folks like LeBron and Kyrie and, and other folks on the bench, like coaching everybody up and how inauthentic it feels. Mm -hmm. But clearly there's something about Jordan that made that feel different. Um, Mm -hmm. that Pippen bought into that and these other players, I think, um, there's an argument to be made that him being so rough on everybody worked on some level. um, Mm -hmm. And that's that's something that I think for you and I is rather uncomfortable, but it's also uh, I think speaks to his the rareness of his leadership ability to be able to do that mm-hmm. in a way because I don't think any I can't think of anybody else that could do that and it not be inauthentic and seem power hungry and and ugly
1: mm-hmm. uh, uh, The other example that comes to mind is obviously Kobe. Uh, and I think we have plenty of evidence that he was the same way, and I think the impression I've gathered on documentaries that have been made about him is that early on it didn't quite work when he was trying to do that, but towards the end of his career it seemingly did work quite well, Uh, and younger players were willing to... Uh, abdicate any power they thought they had outside <laughs> in as a celebrity, mm-hmm. but once they were playing basketball, they were very willing to listen and follow. And it also leads me to thinking about Kobe and Shaq's relationship, uh, which, from all the information we have, like wasn't a great one. They weren't the best of friends, but shared in that drive mm-hmm. um, and kind of were were willing to engage in that space, and then. This brings me back to the linchpin, which is the same linchpin and that being Phil Jackson. And I, I think what stood out to me most about these episodes, even though they weren't all that much about Phil Jackson, they were to some extent, especially about the transition from Doug Collins to Phil Jackson. But uh, it, it, it raised so many fascinating questions and things about, <laughs> like again, about that recipe piece. And... Uh, I guess what I took is how much leeway Phil Jackson gives, mm-hmm. but at the same time exercises power. It's just a different form of power. More specifically, it's not the old school um macho bravado like uh kind of like uh concentration camp style, like you will do whatever I say, I am the authority, this is my team, this is mm-hmm. how it's gonna be run. But he rather, like, attempted to create this culture. And in that culture, it created space for these athletes to be exceptional athletes.
0: I Kind of. In my mind, it sets the tone for Popovich and what he's been able to do and like, yeah. taking that to the next level.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. But, yeah, the part of allowing Dennis Rodman to go yeah. to Las Vegas in the middle of the season for four days... <laughs> uh, and all of them agreeing, like, yeah, there was a, wasn't a lot we could do about that. <laughs> like, what's the option? Cut him, or lose our and lo, lose our leading rebounder, arguably the greatest rebounder of all time, or let him be this person that he needs to be.
0: Yeah, well, and that was that was perhaps like from a basketball perspective, the best thing that I've seen in this documentary as a whole was. Uh, rodman talking about how different people shoot with different ways and knowing which way different people's mm-hmm. balls come off of the rim like no but i i'm sorry tristan thompson i know you're a great modern rebounder i think dennis Rodman would have taken you to freaking school
1: <laughs> yeah I, I don't think there's i, I we've i don't i would argue we've never seen anyone like that no. uh, before or since i i think he kind of stands alone when it comes to that and I don't I don't know about you, I think
0: we're kind of the same in this, but um, there's something amazing to me about someone who takes, well, I mean, we'll, we'll, I'll out you here, you've been reading Robert Caro's absurd stories about uh, Lyndon B. Johnson, um, and that's an example of the same kind of thing. Someone who has taken in an inordinate uh, interest in a small portion of a thing. Um, and that's what Rodman was doing. Like he was knew so much about that one aspect of basketball. Uh, in the same way that I would argue, Caro knows more about Lyndon B. Johnson than anyone should know about Lyndon B. Johnson. <laughs> um, right. But uh, it is a uh, I have immense respect for people that drill down that deeply into that one weird thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I it I I think the parts about Rodman are. I I don't know if we've we've heard enough about Dennis Rodman which is a odd thing to say but I wonder if his cultural significance is more than we think it is hmm. and I wonder if that is the case because the sports media landscape especially then uh it may be less now was just so unprepared and inept at commentated on who and what he was and what he meant um, I also that also makes me wonder if that limited his, his cultural significance because he wasn't being reported on in a more nuanced fashion mm-hmm. uh, he was just seen as a sideshow uh, whereas if he would have been treated I think with a little more sympathy, a little more understanding and a little more curiosity uh, it, it it could have been even more but maybe it, it was a lot more than we think it was. Um, I, I think I, I was trying to remember, and I tried to piece the years together, but I, I think we were in middle school when he wore a dress to a book signing. And I think now about how that would be covered. Mm-hmm. Uh, if one of the best players in the NBA wore a dress to a book signing, what, how, what language would we use? How would we talk about that? Um Whereas, like, I, I think it was only reported as a sideshow, like, attention-grabbing thing. And that's how, like, I think my friends and I talked about it. Like, oh, man, that that dude's crazy. <laughs> you know? But I, yeah. I think we would cover it much differently now.
0: Yeah, I mean, just from a sheer standpoint of, you know, I was talking to some friends this week. And they were like, clearly, Dennis Rodman was gender fluid before we knew what that mm-hmm. was. And mm-hmm. now we have a vocabulary to be able to talk about that. Um mm-hmm in a way that is much different. And so I, I would be very interested, as you say. I mean, clearly there'd still be, uh, I might even argue, the majority of sports fans that wouldn't understand it or wouldn't get it. But the media would have a new standpoint from which to talk about it, which I think you're right, would lead to some different conversations.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. What else? Did anything else stand out to you?
0: Well, I just, uh, uh, I wanted to, to mention the Pistons stuff, just from the standpoint of, A, I don't think Jordan would have been who he would have been without having those Pistons early on beat the crap out of them. Mm -hmm. Um, But also just, like, what a fascinating team. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, clearly a a fantastic team. But um, I think what uh, I would have very little issue with them were it not for the way that folks like Bill Lambeer continue to be Mm -hmm. assholes now out long after this is over. Like if they Mm -hmm. had just left it all behind and said, you know, that's what we had to do to win. I have immense respect for folks that like, you know, as a UVA basketball fan, we win by playing defense, which no one enjoys. Everybody hates it. Um, I have respect for that. But when you like take that mantra off the court and about how we're going to beat the crap out of you, that's when I, I start to have real problems with it. But there's a real sociological question there because apparently that team is still like wildly beloved in Detroit.
1: Mm-hmm. It is fascinating, and I, I I think it might be worth pointing out uh, maybe some of the specifics of this and like how they're still talked about now. But uh, so I guess the Pistons beat the Bulls three years in a row in the Eastern Conference Finals. Is that right? Something uh, like that.
0: Uh, may have only been two, but I'm not two. sure.
1: Okay, and then finally, when the Bulls got through, uh, the Pistons uh, made quite a statement by walking off the court without shaking hands. Mm-hmm. I think even before the game was over, there was still yeah, like time seven on the clock. Seconds left, yeah, yeah. Uh, to which Michael Jordan still hasn't forgiven and is still obviously really <laughs> angry about it. Uh, and on the other side, Bill Laimbeer, who was on the Pistons, Isaiah Thomas are are unapologetic about it. Uh, and still don't find it to be that big a deal, and still use, you know, that uh, machismo sort of like. Sh- sh- um, I just they're not, they're not apologetic, <laughs> uh, and it, I think its significance is compounded by Isaiah Thomas being left off of the Dream Team, mm-hmm. uh, which I wonder if the documentary is going to go any more into it. But they kind of brushed by it. I was wondering if they were going to say more about it, but that it. I feel like the obviousness is that Jordan didn't want Isaiah Thomas on the team, and so he wasn't on the team. Um, which, if that's the case, that's pretty significant. Uh, and I think it goes farther that Isaiah Thomas is like uh, not been beloved in the media uh, ever since then, and partly to his own doing. But I wonder also if it's because Jordan just kind of like blackballed him hmm. uh, in, in more ways than one uh so i i found that piece significant but i just can't help but think of how much space in capital there would be available to isaiah thomas and bill lambier if they were to apologize mm-hmm. <laughs> and say so like gosh that was dumb i i that was so stupid we were young we were, you know <laughs> like yeah we, we shouldn't have done that and like how much that would be like oh yeah great
0: thanks well, and yeah, the Isaiah stuff is fascinating. There has been some stories from ESPN from the progenitor of the USA basketball team that Jordan didn't say anything about Isaiah Thomas during their conversation. So if it was with someone, it was with someone other than him. Then mm-hmm. That conversation happened. But of course, you never know with those right, things. Right. Um, but it is fascinating because, I mean, I um, I have watched some broadcasts with Isaiah Thomas on him. And he is the worst NBA basketball commentator I have ever listened to in my entire life. His takes <laughs> are unanimously the worst and it's very clear why he was a terrible uh person to get involved with the Knicks cuz everything he thought about basketball was wrong. Uh, <laughs> and I like I can't believe I'm going to say that about an NBA player, one of the greats of all time, but no, he was just wrong about most of his takes and continues to be so now.
1: Yeah, he seems to have not caught up at all. No. In, in more ways than one, not just basketball. Just the the it sounds like it's like listening to someone in the 1980s.
0: Well, it is, you know, there's a um You know, I think on some level um, you know, the wishy-washiness and the uh, of Isaiah Thomas is a to his detriment with this? Because Bill Lambert has been, like, very clear, like, no, I'm F, f yeah. them. I don't give a damn about the Bulls. We we do whatever the hell we want to do. Right. Um, and I, I think on some level, like, that – like, we understand that. I, Isaiah Thomas comes off as weak because he says things like, well, I wouldn't have done it if I had gotten on – knew it would have cost me a Dream Team spot. And it's like, well, that's stupid. He's self-serving. <laughs> like, that just right. makes you look way worse than – right." Uh, you know, just standing by your principles, which would have been stupid to stand by anyway. But now you, now you don't have any principles, and you're just out for whatever you want to do. Um, right. So, again, like, some level, I'm like Jordan. Probably would rather go have a beer with lambier Beer than he would with Isaiah Thomas. I imagine. Mm-hmm.
1: mm-hmm.
0: Or a whiskey. Excuse me. Bourbon. <laughs>
1: yeah. Lots of it.
0: Lots of it. <laughs> Anything else on your mind about it?
1: I I think the last piece I wanted to point out, and I don't even know if there's too much to say about it, but the timing of this documentary being released now, I I find interesting uh, in that it's coming at a time when we don't have sports Mm -hmm. uh, and how much of a focus it is. uh, And at at least the... The ESPN mainstream world is absolutely obsessed with this documentary, uh, and that being like, from owners to players to journalists, uh, players in every sport, uh, professional athletes across the world are watching this every Sunday night, uh, and that seems interesting to me, uh, mm-hmm. and significant, and um, yeah, I don't know, I I'm. I'm thinking of uh sorry, all I can think about is Robert Carroll right now <laughs> um but the uh the phrase kennedy weather uh which was used to describe like apparently wherever uh Jack and Jackie went, it was like seventy degrees and sunny and no humidity uh and so they just called it kennedy weather uh is si- similar here with Jordan of just like uh being in the right place at the right time mm-hmm. uh, for his brand uh it, it seemingly is a part of his life to be in the right place at the right time
0: well yeah and to have the right challenges to come his way um mm-hmm. you know to have um be at unc and get dean smith challenging him in the right way to get um doug collins at the right time to have the pistons in his way at the right time to have larry bird and magic johnson as early on folks to try and do and then to have the pistons beat him up and then you know all of that led to who he was there at the end
1: yeah Mm -hmm.
0: yeah interesting all right well let's talk about uh boycotting things then
1: Yeah, indeed. Do you want me to talk about it a little bit?
0: Yeah, I want to hear from you before you get into this. What are you boycotting
1: now? (laughs) What am I boycotting now? Um, Untucked (laughs) t-shirts. Oh, gosh.
0: (laughs) Oh, oh my. You've got to be be the only uh, person I know that rides a skateboard also has uh, tucks in their t shirts and wears socks that come up to their mid calf. Uh, <laughs> you've got to be the only person I know that does that.
1: Yeah. Well it's a shout out to your dad. So All here's right. to here's to Uncle Tom. <laughs> Well, our topic for this week that we wanted to get into a little bit is the 1980 Summer Olympics in Moscow that were boycotted by the United States. And a very brief um, rundown of the historical context for this, I think, is necessary. I don't think, I mean, we could definitely really dig into the history of it if we so desire, but I think for the purpose, of extracting some central questions as it relates to uh, sports and society type questions Um, all that's really necessary is to look at that the soviet union had invaded afghanistan in 1979 and jimmy carter was president and was also dealing with Uh, The economic malaise of the time, he was giving these fireside chats that weren't working, that were coming across as lectures to the American people. Um, The oil crisis uh, was in full swing, and the Iranian hostage crisis had just begun. Uh, So Jimmy Carter was uh, struggling, uh, to say the least. And so when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, the idea was floated to boycott the Summer Olympics, um, there is. I feel like some significance and interesting things in how the conversation was brought up, and how the decision was made, and what the public relations part of it was like, and trying to sell this to the public is maybe something we could talk about. Uh, but ultimately, Jimmy Carter made the decision to keep 400 plus athletes from traveling to Moscow, and uh, went as far as to organize an alternative games. <laughs> Uh, that happened that summer in Philadelphia that were a complete wash. And seemingly, from what I've read about it and seen about it, it felt like a high school track meet. Uh, They allotted like $10 million for it um, and got very little coverage and the athletes were miserable about it. Uh, But there are bigger things to talk about here and I would be interested to hear kind of what are your main significant points that you came away with. But I'll throw out here... At the top, just some central questions that uh, I kind of derived. Uh, the first being, how do we measure the success of a protest in sports? And then secondly, what are the Olympics for? And then thirdly, I think maybe the most interesting question for me in this case is uh, who has the power in a situation like this? Um, and I think the first I kind of way into that is that many of the athletes that didn't get to go that summer like are still really angry today and that takes on new significance in light of coronavirus and the Olympics not happening uh, this year and what that means for athletes that might not make the 2021 team or, or at least might not be able to compete there because they are uh, designed to peak this summer and have spent their whole lives getting themselves to a place to where they would peak this summer. And granted, they didn't have much power over this decision, but uh, they definitely didn't have uh, probably the power they should have had in 1980, depending on your perspective. Um, So I'll kind of throw those questions out there. Who has power? What are the Olympics for? How do we measure success of a protest in sports? And then any other questions you might have?
0: Yeah, so I think… this i I should start by saying that i think that my thoughts about this are largely skewed by the fact that i'm a large admirer of jimmy carter's um Mm -hmm. legacy and i have to confess that um i probably come down on his side in this in the long run just as a kind of a statement and i think that there's some really interesting questions there about um power and stuff but i do think it's worth noting um before we get too deep into this, that I think that this probably wouldn't have happened. Um, And I don't, this is, no one else I've ever read has said this, but I'm going to make this claim very bold, hot take here anyway. Um, I don't think this would have happened without most of the, or many of the African nations boycotting the 1976 Olympics Mm -hmm. and Montreal over New Zealand being allowed to participate because they had defied international ban on rugby to compete against South Africa. Um, Mm -hmm. and so this was you know these uh, instances of olympic boycotts have happened but they're not particularly common so uh, china had boycotted the olympics in japan previously and some other things but there hadn't been you know this is not like something that was happening every olympics and this was just the u.s's turn to do so it was kind of a different thing and i think that that momentum that happened in 76, uh, I think probably led to this in some ways, but, um, I think that there are multiple layers to it. Um, a, I think it's important to note that, um, you know, this will always live as Carter's decision. Um, mm-hmm. but the house of representatives passed the measure supporting it, uh, 386 to 12, and the Senate passed it, uh, again, this is non-binding, so just a letter of support, essentially 88 to 4. So it's not like there w- he was doing this on his own in government, really. Um, there were, of course, a lot of folks that were opposed to it, and those numbers really grew, I think, uh, during and after the time. Um, and he failed to get some of our biggest ri- uh, allies, including Australia, Great Britain, France, to observe the boycott with us, which I think... Um, is an important thing to note there. But I I think going back to your power question, um, there's kind of two components to it. Like the efficacy question is really interesting because I think it comes back to um, uh, what we and those that have since. So kind of Lisa Rice had some stuff about um, how uh, ineffectual it was to boycott uh, and stuff and how it wasn't going to do anything for Russia. I think that we in the West will never understand the way that the Russians and the Soviets understand sports. Um, So I think that that's important to keep in mind throughout this is that the Soviet Union and Russia used sports as a tool way more than I think any of us really understand that weren't there for a word. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the other aspect of it was, and I think this is a really the crux of an interesting one is that question of the athletes, um, because on many levels, uh, I support player power in the modern era. And I think that that's because I see players going up against, um, institutions that are largely unjust. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the NBA is not a terrible institution, but it is an institution that's ruled by white men who are trying to make money. Um, Mm -hmm. And so on that level it's a it's a pretty clear-cut situation for me but I have to confess that I am not a particularly strong individualist and usually come down on the communitarian uh side of things and so I think in this case what we're seeing is that you know 400 athletes um had a miserable experience and I hate that for them but on some scale if this participated in the end of the Soviet Union which was an immensely unjust institution that uh, did horrible things to millions of people, then I can't argue that uh, we shouldn't have done so.
1: Right. Yeah, those are some great points. And uh, I it had me going to, the, looking into this issue, had me arriving at this space of really considering the parameters within which sports operate and how those parameters have to be constructed. They have to be maintained. Mm -hmm. They have to be put in place. They have to be upheld by policy. And then those policies have to be upheld by a product that is valuable and that people want to watch and tune in and pay to see. And so all of that uh, makes me sympathetic to the process of putting those parameters in place. And when a powerful institution or a powerful in, uh, individual, uh, although like you said, Jimmy Carter wasn't on his own in this, he was the president and therefore the figurehead and the voice of it. Uh, kind of w- when that individual or that entity comes in and says like, we're not taking part in these parameters. We're We're, we're just not going to engage because there's something that, is happening within these parameters that makes it such that our principles don't allow for us to engage. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I fall out with you, too, is that, like, I mean, of course, I love Jimmy Carter, (laughs) right? Like, I'm incredibly biased towards Jimmy Carter and uh, will defend most of his decisions. And I think you could even argue uh, and find some evidence that this was good for Jimmy Carter's brand, so to speak. Uh, and kind of many things he did in his presidency that laid the groundwork for uh, the literally exceptional work that he's done post-presidency uh, uh, on a grand, on just a grand scale that is kind of unmatched, I would argue, for a post-presidency. Uh, and so in that way, I, I can see it and I can support it and I can believe in it. Um, at the same time, it, it, getting into that like more nitty-gritty, granular part of it, uh, there was a part of the story that really fascinated me of Jimmy Carter going to speak to the athletes, or at least the athletes that were chosen to come to the presidential mansion um, to talk to him as representatives of the U.S. Olympic Committee. and. Apparently, they didn't stand when he walked into the room, and it was the first time in his presidency that had it happened. Uh, and they were extremely angry, yet the U.S. Olympic Committee voted unanimously to boycott, uh, and apparently the vote was uh, extremely unenthusiastic. But nonetheless, they voted a unanimous vote not to go. Uh, And it was even though the athletes were mad, it was even though the committee didn't want to do it, there was still a belief in the power that Jimmy Carter held, and there was still a belief that uh, there are principles that didn't allow the United States to engage in the parameters that were set. So in that way, it's like... Is that enough of a voice for the athletes? Uh and when it comes to something like the Olympics, uh so like thinking about the parameter conversation, um how do you give athletes power in a space like that where the parameters are global, um or seemingly meant to be global? And I don't know. I don't know if I have an answer for that one.
0: Well, I think uh one of the things that stood out to me um was I think and this is why we haven't done this I really don't understand. I know the IOC must have reasons for it, but I don't, uh, I think this is clearly the best answer was that Jimmy Carter proposed moving the Olympics to Greece permanently to Mm -hmm. avoid the politicization of the whole thing, which would be in my mind, really the only way to take this kind of conversation out of the picture, which is what, um, you know, the world cup is going to be massively controversial whenever it happens, uh, in, in Dubai or, or wherever it's happening in the Middle mm-hmm. East. Um, and the only way you can get around that is by taking that hosting question out of the picture. Mm-hmm. Um, and why these institutions would not do so, I really just cannot understand because you're intentionally on some level making the politics of it part of the game.
1: Right. Yeah. Um so that I, I read a couple other uh, pieces that were uh, attempting to have some sympathy for Jimmy Carter and this but we're also apt to point out of uh, the history of United States invasions mm-hmm. uh, and that we are no stranger to invading smaller countries and poorer countries to get what we need be it uh, politically, economically or some something else and Uh, So, in that way, it raises this interesting question of uh, what is too much Mm -hmm. when it comes to the Olympics. So, I think on smaller scales, we can find evidence that a boycott or a protest in sports is more than warranted, and we probably need more and more protests in sports. Uh, And for those are that are advocating for the least of these there's uh more than enough reason uh to -hmm. protest the sports world uh especially profession in a professional parameter dynamic and so the question becomes like what is too much uh and that's a difficult question to answer uh and it was interesting to look back at um I looked at a couple speeches that Nikki Haley gave before the South Korea Olympics mm-hmm. uh, and she was advocating that a protest was on the table or a boycott was on the table. Um, and so I don't know. It just it, That's an interesting question that have just kind of always hanging there what is too much uh, because uh, it also made me think of like the uh, bus strikes that were happening in Brazil before the Brazilian Olympics mm-hmm. and the the environmental impact of the Olympics and the fact that uh, plenty of researchers have proven that the Olympics are ultimately bad for the city that is hosting them. Uh, if you choose, uh, other ways to measure the effects of the Olympics on a city, in particular, how it affects, uh, poor people in that city. So there's all these reasons. Like if we wanted to find 20 reasons to not be involved in the Olympics, we could find them in mm-hmm. about five minutes. <laughs> um, So, an invasion of another country is a reason not to do it. Uh, You know, it's in the eye of the beholder, I guess.
0: Well, and I think that um, this is where I think Carter is perhaps the only one that could have done this. Um, Like, Carter is, and is my understanding that he may be the only president in U.S. history, at least... Uh, since World War II, that has not uh, the military has not fired a shot uh, in mm-hmm. conflict during his reign, mm-hmm. um, which gives him a unique capacity to stand out against violence and oppression that other folks would not have. And so, I think that that even though we as the United States do not have that capacity to do that, I think that uh, in some ways, even though Carter was went through the ringer and uh, was not considered a very effectual president. Um, uh, he did present a vision of us being better as a country than we thought of ourselves being. He kind of, uh, I would argue that in some ways, this was a statement of uh, of what can we be, not what are we. Um, right. Uh, which I think is very powerful, but in the end, didn't seem to resonate uh, on mm-hmm. the whole because we're a very individualistic country that doesn't doesn't particularly enjoy that kind of thing right?
1: yeah and so I think went to that individualistic piece one thing that stood out to me and um, maybe as a kind of way to like wrap this up a little bit was uh, the idea was floated of taking the passports of the athletes as a means for getting them not to go Uh, and that raised a really interesting question for me of what would it look like for the United States Olympic Committee to say we're not going to sanction sending athletes, but if you want to go as an individual under no flag, we can't stop you from doing that? Um, What that would look like or what that would mean uh, was just kind of an interesting question to consider. And does that uh, bastardize what the Olympics is and what it stands for for an athlete not to be there under the banner of a nation?
0: Well, yeah, and, uh, you know, there's kind of two two responses to that from me one is like if this is really about um the peak of performance then um the country stuff should be taken out entirely which of course mm-hmm. will never happen but i think that's like if you and i were to imagine our best case scenario you know having it um in the his- historical settings of athens and having no uh each country saying their best but they're not really representing their country they're just there as the best at their thing um, mm-hmm. you know that's what that's what we want to see but i also think it's really interesting from our historical understanding of carter cuz he often i think his great undoing was in some ways that he came off as ineffectual even while he was president and lackluster and not powerful but here he was taking an immense stand and in fact like doubling down on it by threatening to revoke passports um right and yet it, it it appears that he chose the wrong thing to double down on in some ways mm-hmm. um.
1: and that 's why the the legacy part of it is interesting and i I feel like legacy is uh an interesting concept in the fact that it 's uh, ever changing it 's never static. Mm-hmm. And how we remember these events is dependent on things that are going to happen tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in that way, I, I find it interesting that I think if you do like a just a quick look around the Internet, you find mostly that this like didn't work or it was bad for his popularity or or that sort of thing. And I find it interesting that both of us are kind of like, yeah, that may be true, but that's not how we measure its goodness. Um, kind of stands out to me. Mm-hmm
0: but well, i think it's also um there's an added component to this which we haven't talked about yet um and is uh, interesting in the sense that um you know we hold up these games these olympic games as you know they were this amazing chance for peace and mm-hmm. uh, for us to come together um and we conveniently forget that during this time this was kind of the peak of um the soviet union doping their athletes like the soviets and the east germans and some of these others were immensely um immensely juiced up on all kinds of stuff Mm -hmm. uh and so that kind of puts paid to this idea that this was some kind of authentic uh sporting endeavor like this was always political on some level and so there was never this like um uh paragon of virtue or or, right. or or something that was happening where this is this amazing chance that you know this was just uh, a weird situation all the way around
1: right yeah that's well said yeah the doping piece of it is interesting to look at. that <laughs> a lot of the doping they were doing was like setting a precedent and setting a standard mm-hmm. of like here's how we're going to keep doing this and continue to do to this day yeah it's interesting
0: yeah I did see a tidbit because of course the other component of this is that it was followed in 1984 by the Soviet union and a number of other countries refusing to come to the 19, uh, the Olympics in Los Angeles that year. Right. Um. It, but interestingly, I think Romania and I, I, I've not gotten this written down because I failed in my stuff, but, um, uh, Romania did participate. Uh, and if I'm not mistaken, uh, I think I saw that they actually led the metal table, um, oh, which, wow. which makes you wonder uh, what was happening in their doping uh, campaign at that point.
1: Wow. Yeah.
0: Well, and so I have two other tidbits here, a little tidbit. So, okay. Um, I hope that uh, we're going to have a new segment at the end, and I hope that neither of these are going to mess up your new segment, Kyle. But um, okay. I probably should have asked before we got on. but. Interestingly, um, Iran boycotted both of these Olympics and mm-hmm. it had nothing to do with either of the standpoints that the USA or the Soviet Union took. They were pissed at both of them, which I think is interesting. Uh, Iran is just such a fascinating study mm-hmm. for me. I really don't understand them the way I would like to. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I learned about a whole new thing, which you're probably familiar with as a, as a history teacher. But Kampuchea, um, are you familiar with this? No. So this is uh, after Pol Pot was deposed in Cambodia. Mm-hmm. They became this country that they referred to as, which I'm sure I'm butchering, as Kampuchea, um, which was not recognized by the international community for like 15 years. Um hmm. and so the Cambodia essentially existed in this new form uh was a uh a Soviet supported um, Marxist state um, but they were unrecognized for like 15 years so essentially there was no recognized government as i understand it, in this in Cambodia during that time Wow. Yeah.
1: That's fascinating. <laughs> I,
0: I need to I, it it went my whistle to go learn more about that so Mhm. I apologize well, to all history people that have studied Cambodia if you if I've butchered that entirely.
1: <laughs> well, one part of that that, that highlights, that was another tidbit I was kind of interested in, um, in in this conversation. And also looking back on sports in this week, even though I wasn't paying that close of attention, I was just reminded of reading about uh, an article that was saying now is Taiwan's moment. Uh, a moment that they've seemingly haven't had for like 50 years ever since uh, they were forced off the mainland and to create a nation state on this small island is that because baseball is being played there, they're getting like um, more notoriety than they've gotten in a really long time. And that it could, if, if they play this right, um, Uh, be really massive for pushing back against uh, how China is dominating these uh, geographic regions along its borders uh, that are attempting to claim autonomy. And that being paired with Manny Ramirez wanting to make a comeback, did you see this? No. (laughs) So he's training and is going to try out for a team in Taiwan. And uh, hmm. I had forgotten he played a couple of seasons in Taiwan after he retired. Uh, and so he's 47 now, uh, and he's he's going to try and play this season in Taiwan. Uh, but it also piqued the interest of, uh, apparently, according to him, several other um, retired MLB players are considering it as well. Hmm. So Manny Ramirez, the statesman, is the conclusion. or That would be a good headline.
0: Yeah. Oh, my. Yeah. That's, yeah, fascinating.
1: <laughs>
0: well, I will, I'll correct myself here now. Uh, Romania was second in the in the table in 1984. Okay. okay. So, still fascinating that Romania as the small country in Eastern Europe could come second in the Olympic yep. table. But, yep. Um. well, anything else you want to share about this?
1: I don't think so. I'm just excited about our new segment.
0: Yeah, so... Kyle uh, has uh, got something exciting to share with us here, which uh, sounds very redundant after you said that, but um, (laughs) why don't you uh, tell us what's going on? Uh,
1: Well, I was um, inspired by resurrecting Car Talk in my personal life, uh, one of my all-time favorite radio shows, and having listened to it recently, uh, was also reminded of how much I loved their Puzzlers. and that show just overall is exceptional. But I thought it would be fun to maybe like throw in a trivia segment at the end of each episode. So maybe what we could do, um, maybe in the future we could like ask each other a question and have like two questions uh, and give the answers uh, on the following episode. But maybe for this week, I'll just ask you a question um, and maybe you can throw out a guess and then we'll we'll check in next episode if that sounds good. Absolutely. Okay So in For the 2024 Olympics There were 28 cities That uh, put in a bid To host the Olympics So in 2024 There were 28 cities that wanted to host the Olympics How many cities Bid for the 1984 Summer Olympics
0: Hmm Uh, now I'm second guessing myself here.
1: Throw out a guess.
0: Uh, I'm going to. Oh, gosh. Does it go higher or does it go lower? Um, <laughs> uh, uh, three.
1: Okay. That's a good guess. Tune in next week for our fascinating trivia question. <laughs> 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 Was I right?
0: You're close okay all right well we'll we'll hear back next week what the answer is and what they are sounds good all right well thank you all for listening uh please give us a rating and review wherever you listen to this and uh subscribe and we'll be back next week thanks carl thanks
1: attention to the voices that are doing the framing what we're talking about is the consumerism Withheld and allotted only nobody's nobody's calling, nope. nobody nobody's
0: calling lebron black jesus I was a huge Dikimpe Matumbo fan.